Well, hey, welcome to Alpine Church. It's great to see you guys. And in fact, I just want to say again, if you're here for the first time, we're so excited that you're worshiping with us. We're so grateful to have you. We hope you feel really welcome today. My name is John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor up at our Alpine Logan campus. I've been in that role for about four years now. And for a little over a year, I've also been serving on the executive team and and the vision team here at Alpine and have just recently begun providing some leadership and some support to the other lead pastors and just really excited for how God's working in that. Uh, I've been married for a little over 25 years now. My wife, Rhonda, and I celebrated our 25th anniversary last year. And like every other pastor at Alpine, I married way out of my league. I uh, outkicked my coverage, you might say. I've got four kids, two boys and two girls that range in ages from 19 to 10. Uh, This is my first time teaching here, so I thought I'd give you a little background on myself. I've wanted to teach here for a while now, but Pastor Jared was always like, you know, we don't just let any scrub come in here and teach at Layton's, so, but I kept bugging him and eventually he gave in. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I've had the chance to really get to know Pastor G over about the last three years, and in all seriousness, one thing I want to say is he loves you guys with a very protective love, Uh, the kind of love that every good shepherd has for his flock. It's clear to see that this campus has really flourished under his care, and that's awesome. Praise God. And the one thing you're going to see is that John Swan is that same kind of guy. He's that same kind of leader. In the brief time I've known Pastor Swan, it's clear to me he loves Jesus and he loves people. And he's going to be a great lead pastor here, and I am excited to see how God's going to continue to work through you guys and in you guys as you pursue him and as you help people go full circle. Well, today we're kicking off a series, a new series called Jesus in Genesis. Now, as you hear that, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. I thought Jesus first showed up on the scene in the New Testament. With a little bit of study, and if you look at the framework of the entire Bible, you'll see that Jesus is not just in the New Testament, but Jesus is everywhere. In fact, you're going to see that the Bible, even though it was written over a period of about 2,000 years by approximately 40 different authors, it tells one unified story. And the central figure of that story is Jesus Christ. See, Jesus in the Old Testament reminds me a little bit of Easter eggs. This series is going to take us right up until Easter, so maybe that's appropriate. But I'm not talking about the Easter eggs we hide with candy in them. I'm talking about Easter eggs in movies, video games, or TV shows. Any movie buffs or gamers in here know what I'm talking about when I talk about Easter eggs? Okay, some of you are right. They are hidden figures references and clues that are placed into movies or video games. In fact, if you Google the term Easter egg, Google describes it as hidden love letters from a creator to his fans. What a great way to think about Jesus in the Old Testament. Hidden love letters from the creator of the universe to his people. So here's some examples of Easter eggs in movies in case maybe you're you're not familiar with this. So anybody ever seen the, it's an old one, but Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? If you look at that, there's a scene where Harrison Ford is holding up this gold artifact and on the hieroglyphics, you'll see R2-D2 and C-3PO. Or in the movie Fight Club, so I wasn't always a pastor, I'm not saying to run out and see Fight Club, but in the movie Fight Club, every scene has a Starbucks coffee cup in it. Or if you have young children, then you've probably seen Frozen, right? So did you notice that in Frozen, at Elsa's coronation, Rapunzel and Flynn are going into the castle for the coronation. So the thing about Easter eggs is they've always been there, but you probably haven't seen them. And for some of you, that may be the case for Jesus in the Old Testament. He's always been there, 
but you haven't noticed him. But once you see it, then it's tough to take your eyes off of it. So let's kind of dig in and look at this. The more you spend time in the Old Testament, the more that you're going to see Jesus show up. In fact, what we're going to see today is that Jesus shows up in the very first part of the very first book of the Bible. He shows up in the very last part of the very last book of the Bible and everywhere in between. Now, we're going to take the next five weeks and we're going to study Genesis and where Jesus shows up specifically in this book. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus reverses the curse. Next week, we're going to look at how Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. The third week will be Jesus, the son on the altar, that famous story of Abraham and Isaac. Jesus, the stairway to heaven. And then we're going to wrap up with Jesus, the rejected ruler. So I mentioned today, we're going to focus on Jesus' role as the one who would reverse the curse. So if you have your Bibles with you or your Bible app on your phone, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus is present from the very first verse of the Bible. He created everything and it was good. See, he created everything and it was good. Now, I know now we can look around and we see a lot of things that are not good. In fact, on some days we probably see more things that are bad than things that are good, but that's not how it was in the beginning. When Jesus created everything, everything was good. And we'll talk here in just a minute about why things are no longer good. But if you think back to the creation story, at the end of each day, what did God say? He looked at all that he created and he said, it is good. And at the end of the sixth day when he created man, he said, it is very good. So let's go ahead and dig into Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now you might be scratching your head and saying, well, wait a minute, I thought you said the title was Jesus in Genesis. I don't see Jesus mentioned anywhere in those first three verses. So what I want to do is I want to pull up another passage in Scripture, another passage that takes us all the way back to the beginning and put it up next to this one. This comes from John chapter 1. So we read, as John writes, he says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So on the left here, we have Genesis chapter 1. On the right, we have John chapter 1. And I want you to keep in mind that about 2,000 years had passed between the writing of Genesis chapter 1 and the writing of John chapter 1. And John had just spent three years with Jesus. Three years of, of listening to his teaching of watching the miracles he performed, of seeing his transfiguration, of watching him raise from the dead. And after seeing all of that, John says, I see Jesus in Genesis. So John starts with in the beginning, which as you can see is the exact same way that Genesis 1 starts. Okay, and this is intentional. This isn't by accident. John would have been very familiar with Genesis 1.1. It's something he would have known. It's something he would have studied. It's something Jesus would have talked about in his teachings. So John is drawing our attention to Genesis 1. 
We interpret Genesis 1 based on John chapter 1. That's an important principle. Good Bible study and good Bible interpretation, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So John's trying to take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And he says, in the beginning, the word, capital W, already existed. And it's capitalized because it's a name. He's referring to Jesus Christ, the word, capital W, of God. And so John says, in the beginning, right, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, Jesus existed. Jesus was there. In fact, John says he wasn't just present. He says that God created everything through him and that nothing was created except through Jesus. And he says that the word gave life to everything that was created. John also makes this statement that the word was with God and the word was God. To which a skeptic may ask, well, which is it? Was he with God or was he God? Well, the answer is both. See, God is one being who has existed eternally in three persons. And that's really hard for us to get our mind around because you and I have never met anyone else like that. But that, that doctrine, that concept of the Trinity, we see all throughout Scripture and we see it from the very beginning. And then John wraps up his statement by talking about the light that shines in the darkness and how darkness cannot extinguish it. So if you look back at Genesis chapter 1, we see how that parallels with the closing in verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And if we look at all throughout the creation story, we see that all God had to do to create everything that we see was simply speak it. He just said a word. And John shows us that that word is Jesus Christ, the word of God. Now, we don't have time to read all through Genesis chapter 1 or all through John chapter 1 today. But I encourage you to do that this week. Do it with your family. Do it with your mentor. Do it with your small group. Take some time and read Genesis 1 and John chapter 1 and just stand in amazement at the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ. I want to take a look at another passage from the New Testament. This is from the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church at Colossae. And he says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. See, Jesus existed before anything was created. That's important to note, it didn't say Jesus was created before anything else. It says that Jesus existed before anything was created. Jesus has eternally existed. He is an uncreated being. We know that God is the only uncreated being. So just like John was saying the word was with God and the word was God, Paul is saying Jesus is God. He existed before anything was created. See, guys, if you're worshiping anything that was created you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Or if you worship anything that hasn't always been God, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And then Paul even expands on what John described about creation. He says, even the things we can't see, 
the thrones, the powers, the rulers, the authorities of the spiritual world, Jesus created those as well. Everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. And I want to remind you that when we look back at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, it was perfect. There was no brokenness. Can you imagine that? I mean, just driving down here this morning, the sun was just coming up over the mountains when I was coming down from Logan. There was fresh snow on the pine trees in Sardine Canyon. And I thought, God, your creation is so beautiful. And it's in a fallen state. Can you imagine how beautiful the Garden of Eden must have been? Can you imagine how sweet and juicy the pears would have been in the Garden of Eden? Or the peaches or whatever your favorite fruit is, right? You know when you taste, you taste one and you're like, that's what a peach should taste like. That's how every fruit tasted in the Garden of Eden. But unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. See, it doesn't stop in chapter 2. It goes on to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we see that humanity believed a lie and sin entered the world. And this cursed everything. And this is why when we look around today, we can't say everything is good. See, everything was perfect in Genesis chapter 2. And then Adam and Eve believed a lie and everything was affected. That's why the scripture says that all creation groans because of sin, because it affected everything. So let's continue on in chapter 3. We'll get into some of the details. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. See, from the very beginning... The serpent, the father of lies, has tried to distort God's word. And I really believe we see here the four most destructive words in human history. Did God really say? See, Satan used those words to tempt Adam and Eve into original sin, and he hasn't stopped using them right up until today. Did God really say you can't eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? He probably hasn't said that to you. Maybe for you it was more like, did God really say drunkenness is a sin? Did God really say that you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Did God really say as much as you've been forgiven, you're supposed to forgive others? Did God really say we're supposed to go out into all the world and make disciples? Any of those sound familiar? Has the devil used, did God really say, to bring brokenness into your life? See, and here's the kicker, just knowing what God really said doesn't always get the job done. Because Eve knew what God really said. In fact, she corrected Satan when Satan said, did God really say you can't eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Eve corrected him. She said, no. God said we can't eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. We can't even touch it or we'll die. There was no confusion. Eve knew exactly what God had said. At least Eve had the first part right. It's amazing to me how many people who call themselves Christians have no idea what God has said on so many issues. Guys, we have to be a people in the Word of God because we have to know what He has said. 
then it has to go beyond that. We can't just know what he said. We have to believe it. See, Eve didn't really believe it. Satan called God a liar, and Eve started to doubt. Now, there's some irony that would make Shakespeare jealous. <laughs> the father of lies, Satan, calls God a perfect being who's incapable of lying, a liar. And Eve believes him. And Eve starts to doubt, and she eats the fruit. And so does Adam, who is standing right there by her. And the curse begins. Friends, it's not just enough to know what God has said. I mean, that's important, but we have to believe it. We have to trust him. We have to trust that what he says is true because just like the devil hasn't stopped using did God really say, the devil also hasn't stopped accusing God of being a liar. God didn't really send his son to save someone like you. You're not really a new creation. God's not working everything out for the good of those who love him. You guys heard any of those lies? Any of those accusations from the devil? I know I have. But God is not a liar. He is truth. Whenever God says something, it is what it is. What he declares is truth. And it doesn't matter how you and I feel about it. And it doesn't matter how Satan tries to distort it. Anytime we trust our thoughts, our feelings, or our opinions over what God has declared to be true, that is sin. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And when they did that, sin entered the world and the curse began. Death came just as God had warned them. We see it again in chapter 3 as we continue on in verse 16 and 17. God is talking to Eve. He says, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. See, God had warned them what would happen if they ate from the fruit. And because God always keeps his promises, he delivered. And the curse came. And he starts here with the curse of pain and pregnancy and childbirth. I don't know if we have any ladies in here who are pregnant. Or if you're in that stage where you can't sleep at night, you just can't get comfortable no matter how you lay, right? You hurt everywhere. And you look over and your husband's sleeping like a log. He's like in a coma and you want to slap him because he has no idea what you're going through, right? Well, it's not his fault. It's the curse. Or the next time you feel he isn't listening to you, extend him some grace. Because he might be thinking, well, Adam listened to his wife and look what happened. So I don't want to take any chances. <laughs> Or the next time you're out working in the yard and you're pulling weeds or, or, or you're at the office and you've been working on that big deal for months, you've got all this time and all this energy invested into it and it falls through and it comes to nothing. That's the curse. And God would have been fully justified to leave us right there. Because Adam and Eve knew exactly what he had warned them. There was no confusion. Eve clearly articulated to Satan what God had said. See, all the brokenness that we experience, all the results of the curse, we brought on ourselves. We deserve it because what God created was good. And we brought it on ourselves. And you might be tempted to say, well, wait a minute, I wasn't there. I didn't eat that fruit. Well, maybe not. But all of us have acted on our own thoughts, our own opinions, our own feelings, in spite of what God has declared to be true. That's sin, and we've all done it. We're all guilty. But praise God, that was not the end of the story. 
Genesis 3. After the fall of mankind, God set in motion his plan to reverse the curse. Jesus is the prophesied redeemer from the beginning. See, God in his infinite mercy immediately sets a plan in place to redeem us, to reverse the curse that sin brought on. And so we're going to look at a verse in Genesis chapter 3, a verse that the theologians call the proto-evangelium, which is a fancy way of saying the first good news. It's the first time we see a reference to the gospel in all of Scripture. And I think what's so amazing is it's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis 3, verse 15, God's talking to the serpent now. He says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now there's more going on here than just the general application that most people don't like snakes. (laughs) I mean, there is that general hostility that most of us have towards snakes. I mean, what do we call someone who's a liar and a cheat? A snake or a snake in the grass, right? Does anybody else in here a member of the only good snake is a dead snake club or is that just me? If you're a snake lover, I'm just kidding, sort of. <laughs> but there's, there's more specific going on here. They're, uh, they're referring specifically to Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the one who will become the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. See, that's one of the reasons that Jesus, Emmanuel, right, God with us, had to take on flesh. Because it fulfilled this promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Because one thing we can trust about God is he always keeps his promises. This is exactly what happened. See, Satan struck Jesus' heel when he was beaten, when he was mocked, when he was tortured, when he was crucified. But Jesus crushed his head when he went obedient to the cross and then rose from the grave three days later, proving that he is the Son of God, but he's also the offspring of the woman that was prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 2.14, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. I love it that it's past tense there who had the power of death. He doesn't have it anymore. Jesus conquered sin and death for us. See, the Son became flesh and blood. The writer of Hebrews is looking all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. and He's saying Jesus is the offspring of the woman that was prophesied all the way back there. And by dying, he broke the power of the devil. He crushed him. You know, as Jesus hung on the cross with his last breath, it says that he shouted the words, It is finished. I think those words have echoed in Satan's ears every day since then. It's finished, Satan. You're finished. I just won. I just crushed your head. Because Jesus has victory over sin and over death. See, maybe you've never thought about Jesus being in the Old Testament. Maybe you're just checking out this whole Jesus thing and you don't even know the Old Testament from the New Testament. That's okay. What you need to know is that the Bible is one continuous story and that you'll see Jesus in it from cover to cover because he's the central figure and it's a beautiful story it's a story of redemption it goes like this that God created everything and it was good it was perfect but then you and I are broken 
We're broken because of the curse. We're broken because we're fallen. We're broken because of our own sinful choices. And because of that, we're separated from a perfect and righteous God because you and I are sinful and we're rebellious. But God didn't leave us there. God put a redemptive plan in place. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus became the offspring of the woman. And he lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he went to the cross for us. And when he did that, he broke the power of sin and he broke the power of death. And for us to experience that, we simply have to put our faith in Jesus. We have to put our trust in him that he is who he says he is and that what he did on the cross was sufficient. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And that because of that, you and I can not only have eternal life, but we could have this full, rich, abundant life here and now. I love how Paul says it in Romans chapter 3, verse 22. He says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. We're not made right by trying harder. We're not made right by being a little better than our neighbor or even a little better than we were last year. We're made right by trusting in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes. Now, right now, some of you are thinking that sounds too good to be true. And right now, the devil's up to his old tricks and he's whispering in your ear and he's saying, did God really say it's about putting your trust in Jesus Christ? Are you sure it's not about trying harder? Are you sure it's not about being better? That is what God really said. <laughs> it's right there in Genesis, th- or Genesis Romans 3, 22, that We are made right by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, no matter who we believe. But you can't just know it, guys. You have to believe it. you got to trust that it's true. You know, that's why we say we're putting our trust in Jesus Christ. We're putting our faith in Jesus Christ. We're saying, God, I believe you. I believe that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient, and I trust that it was enough. And so I just want to end by addressing two different groups of people here today. First, for those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus Christ, I'm praying that that we're going to ask God for a fresh perspective of Jesus in Genesis as we go through this series. That, That we would just be made aware on a whole new level of how much he loves us, of his majesty, of his power, of his call for lordship over our lives. Honestly, that we would reevaluate just how costly God's redemptive plan was to him. He gave us everything. And then for those of you who haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that the truth of Romans 3.22 would be the loudest voice you hear today. That it would ring louder than anything the devil might be whispering to you, that you would know that you could be made right with God by putting your trust in Jesus Christ, no matter who you are no matter what you've done. If you have questions about how to do that, we'll have leaders after the service. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. I'm sure the person who invited you here today would love to have that conversation. But let that be the loudest voice you hear today. Let's pray. Lord God, we just want to say thank you. We stand in amazement at this redemptive plan that you put in place, God, and And we're just so grateful that you are a God who always delivers on your promises. That we can look back all the way to the beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and we see this promise of a redeemer. That the offspring of the woman would crush Satan's head. 
And Jesus, we thank you for coming and, and being that. We thank you for living the perfect life that we couldn't live. We thank you for being obedient all the way to the cross. It cost you everything. So we say thank you. We say we love you and we trust you. We trust that you are enough. So God, I pray that our lives would honor you out of gratitude for what you've done for us. God, I pray that we wouldn't be a people that just talks about going full circle and following you, that we would do it. That we would trust Jesus day in and day out. That we'd seek to honor you in the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we act. And God, would we help others pursue you? Would we share this beautiful story that we see from cover to cover about Jesus, the name of all names? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.